This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book of a series dealing with the book of Job. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture and those of you who are listening to this recording, if you care to join us, will you switch off for a little while and read with us the third chapter of Paul's epistle to the Philippians. We have looked now in this series at the dawning consciousness of Job, the inquiry of his mind, the perturbation he had that God seemed to have no regard for him, gradually led on until he said, even a tree if it's cut down, sprouts again. And you may remember the same word sprout he used of himself, although he could hardly use it when he said, I shall sprout again, but he, that's the very word translated, my change cometh. And so he was led, by analogy, to expect that just as God took care of a tree, surely he would take care of him. And there he had to leave it. Then he comes a bit nearer, he looks round, and he realises that just as in the ordinary circumstances of his daily life, he had a protector that he could call upon, if needs be. That was his king's man. That was the condition of life in those days. Without it, well, they would have been at the mercy of anyone. And again, he uses a famous line of argument. And he says, I know that my redeemer, my king's man redeemer, liveth, and he shall stand upon the earth in the latter day. So he was looking now to another king's man redeemer than the one that was living in his own day. And now this evening, it's all going to be confirmed and more so by the intervention of a man who up to now has taken no part in the proceedings. You may remember that these three friends, they have been arguing with Job and you can roughly uh, ex uh, speak about them as the first one, Eliphaz, he draws on human experience for his argument. If you'd like to go through, you'll find him continually harking back. And Bildad, he draws upon tradition, which is only another way of saying the same thing from another angle. And Zophar stresses the place of human merit, so much so that Job must have sinned, even in secret, otherwise he would never have been treated as he is. It all fails. And at the end of chapter 31, we read Job going through a whole list of things and ends up by saying, verse 39, If I have eaten the fruits thereof without money, or have caused the owners thereof to lose their life, let thistles grow instead of wheat, and cockle instead of barley, the words of Job are ended. And just before that he had spoken about Adam covering, covering his transgression in verse 33 and thistles growing instead of wheat you can see that he's putting himself as if that's the case, put me there. Now the three wise men that have been sitting comforting him it says so these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. But they ceased to answer him from another angle because they've got no remedy. They talk about almost everything under the sun, but they never once mention a redeemer. 
or a ransom. And there's any amount of wise men in this world, living today and have lived in the past, who can talk about almost anything under the sun to alleviate human misery, but the one thing that they count foolishness is what God uses, the cross of Christ. Well now, we're going to consider the testimony of Elijah, both in himself, his person, and in his message. And the first thing I would like you to notice is the arrangement of the subject matter in this book of Job. And you will see it follows very much the pattern of the rest of Scripture. In the first <coughs> opening, chapter 1, we have the historical introduction. Not poetry, just an historical introduction. Tells you that Job lived in a certain place, that he was a man of certain character and a man of dignity. Historical. And at the end, the last chapter, we have historical references to the fact that Job lived a certain time and he had a family and so on. Then when we go back on the story, the second member, we have Satan introduced into the story. Satan's assault is attack. And Job is left stripped. His home, his possessions, his family, and his health. Stripped. And then when you come to the last chapter, in verses 10 to 13, you have Satan's defeat. For Job receives double for all that he lost. Twice the number of camels, his family restored, his age increased by the double. Now there's a lesson in there for us when we reach it. We go back again to the next member, chapter 2, and the three friends arrive. That's what we read about the three friends, their names and their arrival. And that is balanced in chapter 42, verses 7 to 9, the three friends, their departure. They come, they go. And then we have the biggest member of all, chapter 3 to chapter 31, 40. It's the, this interminable argument between Job and his so-called comforters. Nine times over do we have Job answering their nine discourses. And in the middle of it is as miserable comfort as are you all. They never touch the spot. And that is echoed by chapter 38 to 42 where it is Job. And it is the Lord that now speaks to Job himself. So that leaves right in the middle of the book of Job, structurally, Elihu. There he is, right in the middle. And that's suggestive, isn't it? So that's his position. So Elihu is the picture of the mediator. The one that Job so much wanted, and there he is, right in the middle. And I think that's significant. Well now, let's come to this um, intervention of Elihu. It says in verse 2 of chapter 32, Then was kindled the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Bazite, of the kindred of Ram. Against Job was his wrath kindled, because he justified himself rather than God. Also against his three friends was his wrath kindled, because they found no answer, and yet had condemned Job. And he tells them that he had waited, because they were elder than he. And you know, of course, 
in the ancient East, particularly, age was venerated. I don't know whether it is now, perhaps the aged people are not aged enough, I don't know. Uh, but uh, I do remember when the Reverend James Neal went out as a young curate to Jerusalem, nobody bothered about him, nobody listened to him, and somebody said to him, they won't until you grow a beard. So he grew a beard, and then he was acknowledged. I'm not going to tell you I'm going to grow one, but uh, I also remember somebody in, in my own experience said the same thing. The, um, he's recently died, but he was the secretary of the Manchester City Mission, Robert E. Lee. And he was, in his early days, the uh, secretary at the Marmay Mission. And he was a young man, and they said, they won't bother about you till you grow a beard. He grew a beard. He was rather wanting me to grow one. But I think I, I won't depend upon that. If you won't accept me as I am, I'm afraid you'll have to do the other thing. But you know, she said, I waited. You were elders, and I was expecting to get words of wisdom from you. Verse 6. I am young, and ye are very old. Wherefore, I was afraid and durst not show you mine opinion. I said, days should speak, and multitude of years should, should teach wisdom. But he said, in verse 8. There comes a moment when all that deferring to age and so-called wisdom must stop. But there is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. For he's now saying, I'm not deferring to human wisdom. There's an inspiration that we have to remember, and this man stands forward as one who is not going to draw upon analogy or experience or other arguments. He's going to come forward and say, God says this. So he may be one of the very first of those who had the real prophetic spirit. He was, he was speaking by inspiration of God. I think it's the earliest use of the word inspiration in the record of scripture coming right it, as it is in this early book of Job. Well I won't go right through the, the first part of this chapter 32 because we have other matters to consider that are awaiting us. So we come to chapter 33. And he now begins to approach the message that he has to give. Wherefore, Job, I pray thee, hear my speeches, and hearken to all my words. Behold, now I have opened my mouth, my tongue hath spoken in my mouth. My words shall be of the uprightness of my heart, and my lips shall utter knowledge clearly. The Spirit of God hath made me, and the breath of the Almighty hath given me life. So earlier he said, the spirit uh, uh, it was in man and the inspiration of the Almighty gave him understanding. So once again he's throwing himself back on the Spirit of God. If thou canst answer me, set thy words in order before me, stand up. Now the next verse is illuminating because it's touching the very spot. Behold, I am according to thy wish in God's stead. Now what does he mean by that? Well if you'll just look at a few references I think that um, you will discover his meaning. Will you look at chapter 23, verses 3 and 4? Elihu has listened, of course, to all these things and apparently noted them. Chapter 23, verses 3 and 4. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat, 
I would order my course before him and fill my mouth with arguments. He apparently could not get but consciously into the presence of God to plead his own cause. Will you go back as far as chapter 13 verses 19 and 22. He says, who is he that will plead with me? For now, if I hold my tongue, I shall give up the ghost. Only do not two things unto me, then will I not hide myself from thee. Withdraw thine hand from me, and let not thy dread make me afraid. Then call thou, and I will answer. Or let me speak, and answer thou me. He had a dread, you see. And a right thing. A dread of coming into contact with a living God. And you and I would have the same if we did not know Christ as our Redeemer and our Mediator. Even the epistle to the Hebrews says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. The same epistle says our God is a consuming fire. We need this protection. And he said, this terror intervenes and makes me Withdraw. Chapter 16, 21. He said in verse 20, My friends scorn me. Verse 21, All that one might plead for a man with God as a man pleadeth for his neighbour. All that that could be possible. To plead with God as a man pleads for his neighbour. Of course, you see, once more he's thinking of the greatness of God. And then there's that passage which I suppose is in all our minds, chapter 9, 33. He says in verse 32, For he is not a man, as I am, that I should answer him, and we should come together in judgment. Come together in judgment. Oh, friends, can't you fit in something here? There is somebody who is a man, as you are, that you can come together in judgment. That is the glory of Christ in the scriptures that he was found in fashion as a man. And the epistle written by Paul to Timothy says there is one God and one mediator between God and man himself man the book of the, uh, the revised version reads himself man one mediator. Here he's pleading for it asking for it. Verse 33 Neither is there any days man betwixt us that he might lay his hand upon us both. That's the Old Testament way of wishing for a mediator. Someone who could lay his hand upon both. Now a man can represent man, but what man can fully represent God? Even an angel couldn't do that. And yet he was wishing something like that. Well, Elihu stepped in. I think the name of Elihu is rather significant. It means either my God is Jehovah, or my God is he, or it's been also translated God himself, Jehovah, uh, Elihu, God himself. And ultimately, that's where we must come. God himself alone can arrange a gospel. God himself alone can provide a redeemer. God himself alone can settle whether there should be a mediator or not. And here he is. All the others have failed. He now steps in. So, Elihu says, coming to verse chapter 33 again, Behold, I am according to thy wish in God's stead. In God's stead. 
Do those words not bring some thoughts to your mind of the New Testament? In God's stead. God is not speaking to us from the high glory. He's speaking to us through human lips. We see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. No man has seen the Father. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. All that is incipient in these words. Behold, I am according to thy wish in God's stead. I also am formed out of the clay. I am of the same dust and ashes. I am human. Now then, will you not listen to me? God has sent me in that capacity. Behold, my terror shall not make me afraid. Neither shall my hand be heavy on thee. Surely thou hast spoken in mine hearing, and I have heard the voice of thy word, saying, I am clean without transgression, I am innocent, neither is there iniquity in me. And he said, I've also heard you say that he's counting you as an enemy and putting your feet in the stocks, verses 10 and 11. But he said, now we've got to have that rectified. He said, God adopts more than one way to bring a man to his senses, as he says in verse 14, For God speaketh once, yea, twice, yet man perceiveth it not. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falleth upon men, in slumberings upon their bed, then he openeth in the ears of men, and sealeth their instruction, that he may withdraw man from his purpose, and take high pride from man. He keepeth back his soul from the pit, and his life from perishing by the sword. He is chastened also with pain upon his bed and the multitude of his bones with strong pain so that his life abhorreth bread and his soul dainty meat. His flesh is consumed away that it cannot be seen and his bones that were not seen stick out. Job, Job is saying to himself, my is describing me. This is where I've been brought into this condition. But have I been boasting? Have I been taking a wrong attitude? Have I been wrong in maintaining my integrity? You see, the Apostle Paul once wrote about those who criticised him and judged him. He said, I know nothing against myself, but I'm not hereby justified. He that judges me as the Lord who will do it in that day. Because we don't know anything wrong in our own hearts, it doesn't mean to say it isn't there and God doesn't see it. See, Job was so concerned to vindicate himself that he forgot that the highest righteousness that a man can attain in this life by his own acts may not pass muster there. That's where we've all got to come, finally. That's why we read Philippians 3. I'm glad to know that when we have a passage read that somebody in the congregation says, I wonder why he reads that, you see? Well, you see, don't you? Here's a man in the New Testament. He's telling you what sort of man he was. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and touching the righteousness of the law was blameless. Well, that's on the parallel with Job. Because he was blameless. God spoke about that man's integrity and his uprightness. But that's, that's after the standard of men, you see. Because the man who was blameless in Philippians 3 said, he counted it all but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus his Lord to be found in him not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but the righteousness which is of God by faith. So Job's got to get there, you see. 
in the same way. Now he says, Yea, his soul draweth near unto the grave, and his life to the destroyer. And Job had made it very clear that that's where he felt he was. He'd lost everything. He was a pitiful object. He wished for death. And that's what Eli was telling him. But he said, Job, Job, there's a purpose in this Job. And you've already come to the conclusion that there is a purpose in some of your testing, haven't you? We saw that last week. When he has tried me, he said, I shall come forth as gold. Well, Job, here's your opportunity. Listen to this. And this is the way in which this blessed message is introduced. Verse 23. If there be a messenger with him, an interpreter, one among a thousand, to show unto man his uprightness, then he is gracious unto him and saith, Deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. His flesh shall be fresher than a child's. He shall return to the days of his youth. There it is. There's the whole story. Let's look at it bit by bit, shall we? The first statement may first of all seem a little bit unnecessary. If there be a messenger, but we are dealing with inspired words, friends, and let's ponder. A messenger. This is an anticipation of the gospel. Because I suppose you all know that the word gospel means a good message. Evangel, E-V, or E-U, means something good. And the other part of it, Evangel, is the word angel. And angels of heaven. It's good news or good message. The first thing for us to remember is that this is something that comes from God. It doesn't arise from the heart of man or his experiences. If it could have been discovered by the human wisdom of an experience, I think these three men between them would have come to that conclusion. But although they had nine times at it, they were still as far off when they finished. So if there be a messenger, Paul writing the epistle to the Romans in chapter 10, you remember he says, how shall they hear without a preacher? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those that publish good tidings, that preach the gospel of peace. Preaching, sent, gospel, good news. And you know how insistent our Saviour was or the writer of John's Gospel concerning him was every now and again in chapter 3, 4, 5, right the way through you get an emphasis upon the word saint. 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 And it comes in his great prayer in John 17 that the world may know and the world may believe that thou hast sent me. The Gospel is summed up in these words the Father sent the Son to be the Saviour of the world. Yeah, a year or two back I used to put a few texts in the glass case outside and that was one of them. And I opened this chapel on a Wednesday and a dignitary of the Church of England, he'd got uh, gaiters and I don't know just exactly what he was but he had a roving commission given him by the bishop he could go and preach anywhere. And he said, I came in because I was sort of interested to see that text outside. 
I didn't ask him to preach here, but whether he would or not, I suppose he would if uh, he got the opportunity. But it was good to see that it stopped him, and he came in just to see what was going on inside. The Father sent the Son to be the Saviour of the world. If that message had never been sent, we shouldn't be sitting here reading the book of Job. We should have had no interest in it, no desire, no knowledge, no hope. So we, we, we thank Elihu, or God who inspired Elihu, to tell us. If there be a messenger, someone who has brought a message, not invented it, but bringing it. Those of you who come to the meeting on Sunday morning will remember we were looking at the words of Romans, the first chapter and the first verse. The Gospel of God. That's the first title. Not the Gospel of your salvation. That's your side of it. But if it never came from God, it never be your salvation. The Gospel of God. Then it may be the Gospel of God concerning His Son. That's the next step. So, if there be a messenger, an interpreter, will you notice, I've just put on this chart in red letters, you may not be able to read them from that distance, L-U-T-Z is the Hebrew word translated interpreter. Let's get one passage which will illustrate its meaning, although most of us know what an interpreter has to do. Genesis 42. This has to do with Joseph in Egypt. Verse 22, And Reuben answered them, saying, Speak I not unto, Spake I not unto you, saying, Do not sin against the child, and ye would not hear. Therefore, behold, also his blood is required. And they knew not that Joseph understood them, for he spake unto them by an interpreter. Well, naturally, whenever you need an interpreter, it means to say that you do not understand the language in which a message has been brought. You need it to be retranslated. Well, friends, we're in that predicament. We speak of the world. We speak that which is of our own heart. We can only speak that which is within the realm of our experience. And God's words would come to us with no meaning had they not been retranslated into life and witness and death and resurrection in the person and work of Christ. He makes them live to us. So we have this emphasis upon the interpreter. I do remember some years ago when I went to Holland, I understood why some people speak of an interpreter as an interrupter. Uh, it was there when he said, speaking through an interrupter. I said, no, we don't want an interrupter, but we got one. You see, an interpreter is different. And there is a need for this one to, this is where the mediator is stepping in. He is interpreting. He's making God's word intelligible and understandable. If there be a messenger, will he be an interpreter? One among a thousand. Will you turn back to Job, the ninth chapter, verse three? The ninth chapter, verse three. He says, Then Job answered and said, I know it is so of a truth, but how should man be just with God? If he will contend with him, he cannot answer him one of a thousand. And you may remember that other passages in the Old Testament use this expression. One of a thousand. Comes in, in Ecclesiastes, a similar reference to uh, a thousand. 
It looks as though it's a way of saying in a figurative way, someone without compare. If there be a messenger with him, an interpreter, one that's incomparable, one that you cannot compare with anyone else, well surely that's the Saviour, isn't it? There's no possibility of saying, as some do, that he is one of many. I don't think our Saviour could ever take that attitude. He alone is without compare. To whom will you liken me? He might say of himself. So now we've got these three statements. There's a message. It's made intelligible. It comes to us so that we may understand it. And it comes to us by someone who is incomparable. We cannot find a substitute for him. If we do not hear him, we'll never hear this at all. What, what has he got to say then? Or what has he got to do? Now it says, to show unto man his uprightness. Now first of all, I looked at that and having Romans in my mind, I thought, well now nobody comes to a man preaching the gospel to him and then shows to the man his own uprightness. So I thought, well this must mean that when you come and preach the gospel, even in Job's estimation, he shows unto him God's righteousness. I mean, the epistle of the Romans says that the law and the prophets now make manifest that the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets by faith. Now there's one or two things to stop over. The word uprightness is the word Y-O-S-H-E-R Yosha. And it's never once in the scriptures used of God. Well that's, well, that's strange, isn't it, if that's the case. This uprightness is what is used by God himself when he speaks of Job. Will you look at the first chapter, first verse, you know it's there. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. Eschewed evil. That means he kept away from it. There's a little negativeness about that. It's right to eschew evil, but you, if you don't get much further than that, it's a negative righteousness. That may be where Job was. If this, if that, if the other. In chapter 33, verse 3, we read, My words shall be of the uprightness of my heart. This is what um, Job had said. He said, I, I, Behold, now I have opened my mouth, is Elihu is speaking, and my word shall be the uprightness of my heart. There's this same word. And in verse 23, we've got it, uh, shall unto man his uprightness. And in uh, chapter 40, we might as well look at these, chapter 40, verse 3, then answered Job, answered the Lord, Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. Once have I spoken, but I will not answer. Yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. And ultimately, in chapter 42, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything 
and that no thought can be withholden from thee? Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? That's a question echoed from earlier. Therefore have I uttered that I understood not. Things too wonderful for me which I knew not. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee and declare thou unto me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eyes seeth thee. Wherefore I bore myself and repent in dust and ashes. This man said, if I could only get into the presence of God, I would maintain my integrity and stand for my uprightness. But he got his opportunity. Oh, he said, I've heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now I see. I repent in dust and ashes. So I come back. And it looks as though Elihu meant to say that he was going to show to Job what Job's uprightness was. He was going to show him, like Paul was shown, that even though he could boast that touching the righteous requirements of the law he was blameless, that didn't give him a righteousness in the sight of God sufficient to do without Christ. So he said, Job, look, that's what you are in the sight of God in spite of all your claim to, it, to being innocent and upright. And so we get the same thought in the prophet Isaiah when he puts into the mouth of the repentant people of Israel all our righteousness is a filthy rag and we all do fade as a leaf. Not merely all our sins but our righteousnesses. So one of the things that the gospel has to do is to strip Job's going through it, isn't he? He's stripped in the first chapters of all his possessions. And he is stripped at last of his boasted righteousness and his uprightness. Now he stands before God. It's levelling, isn't it? And the book of the Epistle to the Romans is levelling. It says there is no difference for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, including Job, including Noah, including Daniel, the three men that picked out and said, from another angle, they alone should stand by their own righteousness. But he says, it's their own. So now we've got to the point, there's nothing else for it. Here's the man brought like that. He's listened to the message. He's understood the message. He's realised himself. He sees what his righteousness amounts to. Now says God. Then, now says Elihu concerning God. Then he is gracious unto him. Grace begins to operate now. Up till now they've been arguing about merit. Deserving this and earning that and so on. Then he is gracious unto him. And said, deliver him from going down to the pit. And you must remember, of course, that unless the ransom does that, it fails. So many preachers we're thankful to say, preach a ransom for sin. But it's wise sometimes to also remind God's people and those who listen that God has put in the word, I will ransom thee from the power of the grave. For if God had forgotten that, we should be ransomed for just a few years of this present life and then be finished. But it isn't. So this is touching the end, says now. I will ransom thee. I have found a ransom. Now this word ransom, as you may see from the uh, bottom of the chart, 
is a word that we're acquainted with, I hope. The word kopher, K-O-P-H-E-R. If you're anyway in contact with Jewish people, you know that the Day of Atonement is called Yom Kippurim. And it's the same word, the letter H being removed, moved for grammatical purposes. Kippur, kopher. And if you want a little memory note, the word kopher means cover. Well, it's almost written, isn't it? Very little change. And a coffer, in English, is almost an equivalent. A chest in which you may put things and shut the lid and cover it. A covering. It looks as though it was written in the heart of men that if they'd sinned, they needed a covering. Our first parents, the moment they sinned, provided their own covering. And then God didn't say to them all, that's no good. What he did was he took away their covering, but he gave his own. Still a covering. But that covering meant life was laid down and blood was shed. And so we have ransom. Now I think it's a very important thing to notice that before, before even Moses had received the law of Sardii and given all those specifications concerning sacrificial offerings and so on, that the word kofa the word had already got this redemptive meaning in it. You do know, don't you, that the first occurrence of this particular word translated ransom comes in Genesis 6, when it says about Noah who built the ark, he pitched it within and without with pitch. That's the first occurrence of the word atonement in the scriptures, or ransom, because it meant a protective covering. For if that hadn't been done, even the ark itself would have sunk in the storm But the pitch was the protective covering like the ransom that it represented later on. So we see that right in these very early days, this word which means so much, this word which means now and comes in the New Testament as well, atonement, had that meaning. I have found a ransom. Well now, if that's the case, the sin is settled, the question of Righteousness is settled and restoration is now in view. His flesh shall be fresher than a child's. And it's good to see in the last chapter that Job is restored so completely that his three daughters were fairer than all in the land. As it's mentioned, so that you shall realise there was no taint, it was all removed. He was a picture of resurrection. He shall return to the days of his youth. Same sort of spirit, and renewal. Well, I felt that this this was the climax of a witness, so far as the evangelical side of Job is concerned, with Elihu in himself, a picture of the mediator, and his message, a picture of the gospel and its basis, the finished sacrificial work of Christ. I think we ought to be thankful that right back in those early days whenever Job was written this was known to men and was believed even as it must be today and it must be until the end of time. Well now there are just one or two other features that await us before we say well that's as far as we can go with the book of Job mustn't unduly uh, prolong this study because it's confessedly a difficult book in many ways Uh, But the sequel, 
the end up of it has got some prophetic value. And I also feel it might be wise to spend one evening in discovering how much of this book has influenced other writers. And there's one bit that thrilled me, because I discovered, it doesn't come in many lists that are given in printed books, but I discovered proof that the Apostle Paul must have been reading the book of Job when he was in prison. And you can quite understand that he might, couldn't you? There's he in prison, he might have been downhearted, he might have been wondering, and he read this book of Job, and he actually uses the words of the book of Job when he wrote the epistle to the Philippians. But if you seek for it in the English version, you won't find it. So we'll wait until we have it before us, and that, together with the sequel, with its emphasis upon the restoration of Job, I think will bring this series of studies to a conclusion. So far as this meeting is concerned, I trust it won't mean a conclusion so far as any of us are concerned, because I'm hoping that you'll go back to the book and say, well now, I'll plough through it. I'll wade through all these arguments and I'll keep in mind what God had intended and what he did and what Elihu said at the finish. So may the Lord bless this testimony, not only to you friends sitting here, but those who we shall never see until we all meet in that day that even Job looked forward to. When at last, he said, my Redeemer shall stand in the latter day upon the earth. We may not be there on the earth with him, but we'll be with his Redeemer. We'll be with his Mediator. We'll stand because of the work of that Saviour and the ransom that he offered for many.